once you've turned to Matthew 28, I want to start this, this morning by reading again some lyrics from a song by Matt Hoppe called, This Changes Everything. And he talks about the resurrection and how it ought to change our lives. He says, I grew up in a little town, used to sing in the old church house, there in the pew where I used to hide, I learned the story about the man who died. Well, I was sure I heard that he got back up, but as we broke the bread and drank the cup, seemed the faces told another tale. They were as dry as the bread was stale. Did I miss something? Was I not supposed to cry? Did they hear the preacher? Jesus is alive. Now I've got a wife and a family. We live in a land that's safe and free. And on every corner a steeple shines where I'm taught to build a happy life. I've been taught to build a happy life. Did we miss something? Are we not supposed to cry when so many don't know Jesus is alive? O Lord, have I become a man, too scared to be a child again, too comfortable with amazing grace, familiar with the empty grave. Did I miss something, or have I begun to lie? Do I really live like Jesus is alive? If this is true, this changes everything. If this is real, I've got to tell the world. If he is God, then I've got a choice to make. If I believe, then I must follow him. Really, as we contemplate the resurrection, this should change everything, shouldn't it? This event, when we grasp the resurrection of Christ from the dead, it changes the way that we face life and the way that we live on mission for him. This is what we see in Matthew chapter 28. Really here we have the resurrection of Christ as well as the commission of Christ. So we're going to see three parts here to the text and work through them. Christ's resurrection in verses 1 to 10. Christ's opposition in verses 11 to 15. And then Christ's commission in 16 to 20. So look here at the first part, verses 1 to 10. And really, before we get into this, we have to note the context. We know as we gathered on Friday, we read through Matthew 26 and 27, what precedes this is the trial, the betrayal of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion upon the cross as he gave up his own life, and died for the sins of his people. And also the burial we see in Matthew 27, verses 15 to 61. It says there, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. 
And so this Joseph had gone, he had taken the body from Pilate, he had put it in this tomb. Mary Magdalene and, and the other Mary were there. They saw the tomb, they saw Jesus dead, laid in this new tomb, and they saw it sealed over with that rock. Now also, in addition to the burial, we see at the end of chapter 27, the further sealing of the tomb. Maybe this is something we don't focus on as much. It's a detail that Matthew gives us that actually this, this tomb was sealed by Roman guards. Look at verse 62 of chapter 27. It says here, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, so this is Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Now what you have to know about the chief priests and the Pharisees these were the very men who instigated also the death of Jesus Christ, right? These were men who were opposed to him, who hated him in his ministry. These were the people actually who paid Judas to betray Jesus into their hands. And so now they're gathering with Pilate, and it says in verse 63, and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. They had remembered that Jesus had spoken of his death and his resurrection after three days, which is interesting because even the disciples don't seem to remember that detail at this point, but his enemies remember that. Then verse 64, therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So they wanted to secure that nothing would happen anymore with this Jesus fellow. They hated him. They hated his followers. They hated his movement. They were envious of him. They wanted to stamp out anything possibly that could happen with Jesus. Then verse 65, it says, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. And that word there, guard, is multiple soldiers. This was a, a company of soldiers that were put there to guard. And he says, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Okay, so all of these guards are surrounding the tomb. They've sealed the rock. They've set all these guards around it. You think of you know, walking into Buckingham Palace, you might see those guards with the big, tall, black, fuzzy hats, and they're making sure that no one goes in or out. That was the idea here. No one was going to get in. No one was getting out. Nothing was going to happen with this tomb. They tried to ensure this in opposition to Jesus and his disciples. <clears throat> now, as we go then into chapter 28, it says, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So this is Sunday, this is the first day of the week, and it's beginning to dawn, and Mary and Mary are on their way to this tomb. The same Marys who had seen Jesus laid in that tomb, who had seen the rock put in front of it, and other gospels tell us there were multiple more women there, Salome and Joanna and even others. <clears throat> and 
And also the other Gospels tell us, Mark in particular, that when they were on their way to the tomb, they started thinking, oh boy, how are we actually going to move that rock? They were bringing spices to again anoint the body, and they were wondering how they would actually get into the tomb. Of course, they didn't know there were guards there as well. But it says then, in verse 2, this is an amazing detail Matthew gives us. It says, and behold... There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The other gospels help us to understand that really the women weren't there quite yet at this point. This was happening in order to terrify the Roman guards and get them away from the tomb. They became like dead men for fear of this glorious angel coming from heaven. God himself sent by his power this blazing angel in his glory like lightning, pure, clothing white as snow, in order to disassemble these guards to remove his foes from the picture, and to open the empty tomb. We see him sitting upon the rock, all cool and calm. He didn't even have to speak to these soldiers. He didn't have to attack the soldiers. But they were left completely terrified before this great angel of the Lord. You see that he scatters his enemies, this power of the angel, we should note, does not even compare to Jesus' coming glory when he returns to judge the world. Now, in verse 5, we see that the angel now addresses the women. And we learn from other gospels as well that there were multiple angels. They spoke to them inside of the tomb. And what do they say to these friends of Jesus. They just terrified the foes of Jesus. What do they say to the friends, to the disciples of Jesus? The angel says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So he comes to these women and he says, you don't need to be afraid. We're not here to scare you. We're not here to scatter you. We're here to bring really news of comfort and joy to you. Don't be afraid. Be at peace. I know what you're seeking. You're seeking Jesus who was crucified. They know, yes, Jesus was indeed crucified. He truly died. He truly gave up his spirit upon that cross. He was truly laid in this grave, dead. And yet, they say, he is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Note there, Jesus was already out of the tomb before the tomb was opened. That was no obstacle to this risen and glorified Jesus. But really, the empty tomb was opened so that the women and the disciples 
could go in and see it. To see that Jesus was no longer there. See, come, see the place where he lay. They noted that he was risen just as he said he would be. Jesus, throughout his ministry, three times very clearly said that he would die at the hands of sinners, at the hands of wicked men, at the hands of the Jewish authorities, and he noted that he would rise three days later. And of course, we know many scriptures in the Old Testament speak to this reality of the resurrection. Think of Psalm 16, which I read earlier. Isaiah 52 to 53 speaks of the exaltation of that suffering servant. There are many pictures even. Isaac and Abraham, they went on top of that mountain, and on the third day is when Abraham was about to slay his son, but figuratively speaking, he received him back from the dead, is what Hebrews says on that third day. Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale and then came out, resurrected, as it were. And so as Jesus had spoken, as the prophets of old had spoken, Jesus had risen from the grave. And they're to come in and see this reality. Now the angel doesn't stop there. He tells the women to go quickly and tell the disciples that he had risen from the dead. And that Jesus was going before them to Galilee. And there they would see him. And so we see in verse 8, they depart quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. It's very interesting at the end of Mark, it notes that initially the women were terrified and they went away and they told no one. But Matthew notes that there was also this great joy beginning to well up that would become complete as they ran and told the disciples. This was not something really to be afraid of, as the angel noted, but rather something to rejoice in, that the Lord who had died had been raised from the dead. Now in verse 9 and 10, we see that Jesus himself met them and reassured them of these truths and appeared before them so that they might really see that he was indeed risen from the dead. Verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. That's the proper response to the risen Jesus, to fall before him, to worship him. And you note there that Jesus doesn't stop them from worshipping him. At other times in Revelation, for instance, John has this kind of reaction before angels and he, and he stoops down and he begins to worship. The angel says, don't do that. I'm just a servant like you are. Jesus does not stop people from worshiping him. This is the Lord. This is God in the flesh, risen and glorified. He is the object of our worship. You note then in verse 10, Jesus really reiterates what the angel had said. He says, he speaks comfort to their hearts. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. 
just stopping for a moment here, some application. We should note that the resurrection of Jesus spells fear for his enemies, for those who would oppose Jesus Christ. This ought to terrify. This ought to make us like dead men. Because as Paul even says in Acts 17, 30 to 31, God is now commanding everyone everywhere to repent because he has appointed a man by whom he's to judge the world in righteousness. And of this he's given assurance and proof by raising him from the dead. If you're in opposition to Jesus, you ought to tremble at his resurrection. He is raised from the dead to reign as Lord of lords and King of kings. And he's coming back to judge the world. But this also is comforting to the friends of Jesus, isn't it? The disciples had been mourning. They had been weeping. We see in John 20, Mary was sitting even at the tomb weeping. And they said to her, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? See, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And this actually is all our hope. This is all our peace. This is all our joy as Christian believers. Because the resurrection means, I mean, first and foremost, that Jesus actually completed that work that he did upon the cross, that he was raised for our justification, that he can forgive us of our sins because that sacrifice was acceptable to God as the Holy One, the Son of God. He himself was sinless and he raised from the dead. He had no sins of his own to pay for. So once he had paid for ours, he rose victorious. That was a finished work. Our sins are forgiven. It also means that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who would be raised on the third day. He is the Holy One of God. He's been declared in power to be the Son of God by the Spirit of Holiness, raised him from the dead. This means that Jesus is presently reigning, that he's alive, that he's with us, as believers, as we'll see even at the end of this passage, he is with us all the days to the end of the age. This means that all our enemies have been dealt the death blow. That death effectively is about to be destroyed. That all of our sins, all suffering, that the powers of darkness, that Satan himself, that death itself has been destroyed effectively. Christ has taken away the power of these things by his resurrection from the dead and his finished work upon the cross. And so this brings hope and peace and great joy that should overwhelm all of our fears. We can stand in the worst circumstances of life and say Jesus is risen. And that gives us hope. I was talking to a brother yesterday, not from this church, but he had received a troubling note from his doctor, a CT scan that showed something that's potentially very bad. And we prayed together and I 
I was thinking about this message, obviously, and I just said to him, Jesus is risen. And we shared there for a moment the hope that we have. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Even in the face of terminal illness, if that's what it is. Even in the very face of death. To say Jesus is risen. He's overcome death. We also will be raised up on the last day if we believe in him. He is the resurrection and the life. So this changes everything. The way we can look at sin, at suffering, at death. So we need to gaze upon the empty tomb. All the more, as the angel says, come, come see the place where he lay. This tomb was opened. Again, not so Jesus could escape. He could get out by his own power. But so that we could go in and look and see Jesus is risen. Now, as we go on into verses 11 to 15, we see the second point here, Christ's opposition. And we see these chief priests and the council of elders, the Sanhedrin, the highest court in Jerusalem, convening with these guards who now terrified, some of them run to go and see what they're to do. Since the tomb has been opened, it's empty, there's, there's this angel that has appeared, they've been terrified, what, what are they going to do? So they run back, it says in verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Note again, these were the men who opposed Jesus from the beginning. These were men who hated Jesus Christ. Even chapter 27, verse 18 notes that Pilate knew it was out of envy that they were delivering Jesus up. These leaders were actually envious of Jesus. They saw this movement gathering around him and that he was making these claims to be Lord and the Son of God and they didn't want people following Jesus rather than them. They knew Jesus' teachings while Jesus combated with the Pharisees, didn't he? He called them out for their self-righteousness and their hypocrisy. They were envious. They were jealous. They, they hated Jesus. So this guard comes back to them, and what do they do? Well, they tell the soldiers to spread a lie, to spread a story. And as money is always a good motivator, they give the soldiers a sufficient sum of money in order to spread this lie. They give them assurance that if this comes to the governor's ears, I mean, that this actually would have been a bad thing for the soldiers if the governor heard that his soldiers were sleeping on duty and they didn't fulfill their duty, that could mean death, that could mean severe punishment. But the chief priests assure the soldiers, well, we'll keep you out of trouble. We'll, we'll convince the governor. We'll persuade him. 
Okay, so they take the money. Even just as Judas took money from these wicked men to betray innocent blood. And so this story is spread among the Jews. And Matthew notes even to this day, likely a little bit before AD 70, Matthew is writing this gospel. And so this had been uh, traveling around in this region among the Jews for some 30, 40 years. Now, why do these people spread this story, spread this lie? Well, as I noted, they already hated Jesus. They were already opposed to him in their hearts. And so they have no problem slandering, fabricating lies in order to stamp out this Jesus movement. And we see that today it's really no different, is it? People still do the same thing today. People come up with many theories to try and explain away the resurrection. They fabricate these lies that are really based on no evidence whatsoever in order to stop people from believing in Jesus. Because why? Well, they themselves are already opposed to Jesus in their hearts. There's many theories even this stolen body theory is still spread today. People say that the disciples probably went in and, and took the body and then made up these stories about the resurrection. Now there are a number of problems with that theory. First and foremost, if the soldiers were really sleeping, how would they know who took the body or how it got out? <laughs> they wouldn't have known. So how do we know it's the disciples Jesus who took the body. And secondly, people don't normally live abject uh, lives of persecution and suffering and martyrdom because of a lie. If the disciples had made this story up, why is it that they were willing to be persecuted for this story? and to even give up their very lives for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People don't willingly live like that and give up their lives for something that they know is false. So that theory falls to the ground and it's based on no evidence whatsoever. Even those who first spread it knew that it was a lie. There's also another theory, the mass hallucination or mass vision or cognitive dissonance theory. People propose that all these disciples were hyped up, that they were thinking upon the resurrection and they, they really wanted to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead as he spoke to them and as the Old Testament scriptures had noted. They so wanted to believe this and they were perhaps hallucinating together, working themselves up into a fever, believing that they actually saw Jesus risen from the grave, or that they all perhaps experienced some sort of vision together while they were worshiping, or even that there's this cognitive dissonance that they couldn't handle the reality that Jesus had died. And so they were, they were so hoping that he would be back from the grave that that there's this dissonance in really what was true and the reality that they made up for themselves. 
And so they convinced themselves that Jesus was alive. Well, that theory also falls to the ground because as we know from the gospel accounts, these disciples actually did not have their minds on the the resurrection from the dead. They were slow of heart to believe everything the scriptures had foretold. They weren't even thinking that Jesus would rise from the dead. They were mourning over him. They were weeping. They thought he was gone for good. So this theory really doesn't make any sense. There's also the swoon theory. Even the Quran, the book of the Muslims, in Surah 4, verse 157, says that, well, Jesus really didn't die on the cross. He, he, didn't, he didn't really get crucified upon the cross. And other people suggest that perhaps Jesus fell unconscious on the cross. And then when he was in the tomb, he resuscitated and then he walked out on his own. Well, this is, again, a ridiculous theory because the Romans knew how to kill people. Crucifixion, you you don't escape from crucifixion. No one survives flogging and all of the scourging that Jesus went through and being nailed to a cross whereby you would normally suffocate to death if not, if you had not died earlier, they would break the legs in order to ensure that those were dead. And we know in John 20, they had already seen that Jesus was dead, so they didn't break his legs. Not a bone in his body was broken. They put the spear in his side, water came out. And we know even more than that, that Jesus himself was the one who gave up his spirit upon the cross. He surely died. And he surely rose again. See, all these theories are ultimately groundless. They have no historical evidence, whereas we actually have eyewitness accounts from those very disciples who saw him risen from the grave. We have people who were actually there in that time period writing not just two witnesses, not just three witnesses, but four witnesses, and even more throughout the New Testament with historical accuracy that is confirmed even by outside sources. Josephus even writes that there was this man, Jesus, who was crucified and his disciples told people that he was risen from the dead. So why do people make up these theories? Again, it's because people by nature are opposed to Jesus Christ. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They, they try to burst their bonds apart and rage against the Lord and his anointed, his Christ. We know that we're all born in sin. We're all born rejecting God, rebels from the cradle. And so people dispel of the resurrection because they already don't believe in Jesus Christ. They don't want to believe in Jesus Christ. Those who already hated him were the first to spread these lies, and today it's really the same. But we know that God can overcome all doubts and disbelief and all opposition and all rebellion, don't we? Even a man like the Apostle Paul, who was so vehement against the early church, who tried to stamp out this movement, who is on his very way 
to imprison disciples in Damascus, was stopped by the risen Lord, and all of his opposition was dispelled that day as scales fell off of his eyes, and as he repented and believed in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, and became his disciple. We read even in modern times of a guy like Lee Strobel, a journalist, he called himself an atheist. He investigated everything about Jesus Christ and his resurrection, and the Lord overcame his heart and caused him to believe. So we ought to continue putting these things before the people, putting the realities of the, the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in front of people's eyes. And the Lord will surely do a work in many to cause them to believe, to overcome the rebellious heart, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, as we go on here, verses 16 to 20, we see the third point which is Christ's commission. And I have to say beforehand that I think likely I'm going to preach on this again next week in more detail because there's so much here. I just really can't, can't deal with it all in one message. But here we see the setting of this great commission. The, the disciples hearing that Jesus would appear in Galilee, they go there. Now 11 disciples since Judas had hanged himself, and says in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now it's interesting that Jesus would direct them back to Galilee, and back in particular to a, a mountain or a hill. I was looking on Google Maps, and you know, you notice there are actually a lot of hills, sort of low mountains around the area of Galilee. But what is the significance of Galilee? Well, this is where Jesus really began the bulk of his ministry. He began preaching and teaching, calling people to repent and believe in towns in Galilee. And he called even these disciples there in Galilee. Many of them were fishermen on that sea of Galilee or the sea of Tiberias. And he called them to follow him and they rose up they became disciples, that is, followers and learners of Jesus Christ. And we know also that it was on a mountain, perhaps even the same mountain, that Jesus gave his sermon on the mount, which is all about what it means, what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so I think the significance here is that Jesus wants to give them one last lesson about discipleship. Namely, that if you're a disciple, you need to be about making disciples. Disciples make disciples. He gives this great commission here. Verse 17, it says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Again, like the women who had run into Jesus back in verse 9, when they saw him, they worshipped him. This is the proper response again to this risen Lord, but we see mingled in there, some were doubting. You know, in John 20, there's doubting Thomas. He had to actually see Jesus' body and put his finger in the wounds 
before he would believe, Jesus rebuked him. Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And yet there are some here, some disciples who were doubting. Don't we know it to be true that even as believers in Jesus Christ at times, we doubt? Well, we need to go back to the written record, don't we? To the truth of Scripture to overcome our doubts. We need to go again and see the place where he lay. We need to go and look at these accounts of his resurrected glory in order to confirm again our faith. Verse 18 and 19 and 20, Jesus then gives this great commission. Really, he speaks first of his all-encompassing authority, and then he gives an all-encompassing commission. In verse 18, it says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Note that word, all. This is all-encompassing authority. This means all control, all power to save to judge, to govern. You notice he's over all spheres of creation, the heavens and the earth. This is the spiritual realm and the physical realm. This is everything that God has created. And Jesus comes and he says, all power over all of this has been given to me. We know that Jesus eternally had all authority as God the Son with the Father, with the Spirit from all eternity enjoyed complete glory, co-equal authority with the three persons of the Trinity. And then we see when he steps down, when he comes to earth in his incarnation, he again displays divine authority. He does things that no other person ever did. He speaks as no one ever spoke. He exudes this otherworldly, this heavenly authority. But there's a truth here that Jesus, in a special way, was granted authority by the Father after his resurrection from the dead. There's a special way in which as the God-man who has accomplished his work of redemption, who has so humbled himself to obedience, even to the point of death on the cross, completing the work of salvation, he has now been crowned with glory and honor and exalted and given the name above every name so that everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth should bow the knee to him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see in scriptures like Psalm 2, Today I have begotten you, you are my son. Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. One particular text I want you to look at here is Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 speaks of this 
humbling of Christ, and then his exaltation and his reigning over all things. Starting in verse 8, and he's quoting from Psalm 8, or verse 7 rather. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see that everything has been given over under Jesus Christ's control. And right now, there's a leg in time. From the time Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, he has been sitting at the right hand of the Father. But he is currently putting all his enemies under his feet until he returns and the last enemy is destroyed, that is death. And he hands the kingdom back over to the Father. Jesus Christ, though, we need to note, has all authority. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings, truly. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Now, in light of that, getting back to Matthew 28, verse 19 here, you might ask, well, what are, what are his kingdom subjects to be doing then? If he is king, if he is Lord with all authority, what is he asking for his servants to do? What are disciples of this Lord to be doing on this earth? What is their mission? What is their commission on earth until he returns? Well, it's this, what he records here in verse 19 to 20. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is the main idea there? It's that these disciples are to make disciples themselves. Jesus had said when he first called these men, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They're to make disciples. That's the main verb in verse 19. And then there are these other supporting participles, going, baptizing, teaching. These are means by which this commission is going to be accomplished. But the main idea there, again, is make disciples. Again, a disciple is a learner of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. And so how do we make disciples? Well, it's quite simple. We put Jesus before them. We proclaim the gospel. We share the good news of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And God will make people's hearts supple to that truth. And when they receive it, they begin to follow him. We call people to repent and believe in this Lord, this Christ, this risen Lord. And as they rise up to follow Him, then we continue discipling. We baptize. 
when people come to repentance and faith. We begin teaching, and we teach everyone to observe everything that Christ ordered his disciples to do. So we need to acquaint people first with Jesus Christ, and then as they believe in him, well, we continue teaching them of Jesus Christ. And as disciples ourselves, we are not pointing to ourselves to follow. We're pointing to Jesus. You follow him as I follow him. And this, friends, requires going. As the first participle in verse 19 notes, we're not to stay in a holy huddle where we are. We're not to just confine ourselves to our church building on Sundays and never go out into this world and evangelize. Neither are we to try to usurp territory that someone has already taken the gospel to. We need to go. It says all nations. This gospel must be proclaimed among all the nations as a testimony. And then the end will come, Jesus says. And there's a great promise here. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Are we to do this in our own strength? No. We have the very presence of Emmanuel, God with us, to empower us on this mission, even to the end of the age. This is the present evil age we're in. It's the age in which we spread the gospel, we make disciples, we baptize them, we teach them, everything is commanded, we obey Jesus Christ till the end of the age, till that age to come begins when Jesus himself returns. May we be faithful to that. Let's pray. Lord, we believe in you. Help our unbelief. We worship you. Lord, we glorify you as our King of Kings, and we ask that you would indeed empower us, Lord, for our mission here on earth, even until you come. We pray in your name. Amen.